And now, the two merry podcasters of Trashy Divorces and their rendition of the Cell Block Tango. Pop. Six. Squish. Uh-uh. Cicero. Lip shits. Welcome to Trashy Divorces, y'all. We are talking about some bad ladies this week. Or, to pretty much straight-up murderers. I mean, but bad in different ways. Oh, for sure. Stacy, you covered the... Three up, three down. Oh weird associated trashy divorces of the the trash the trashy divorces that led to the murder of David Harris by his wife Clara Harris, and you had a much more disturbing story. Uh, in the my view, they're trashy, both disturbing. The trashy divorces ditty of uh, Betty and Dan Broderick. <laughs> I was mostly just happy to introduce my true crime podcast, my imaginary true crime podcast. Squeamish. It was, it was really good. I'm totally going to subscribe to that. Okay, um, so our theme song this week, though, is one of your favorites oh from, the gosh, from the Chicago. musical Chicago. If you have not ever seen Chicago, do yourself a favor and watch that. Today we go through the stories of these two women and their... Eventual long prison sentences. Particular tales from the uh, Cook County cell block. But did he have it coming? We'll let you decide. No, the answer is no. No. There's no, 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 they did not have this coming. Trashy Divorces as a podcast does not recommend murder. We don't. We don't. We recommend therapy. We do. And liquor. Hmm. All right. Uh, Therapy and liquor. It'll get you through. Yeah. Let Alicia put your wellness plan together. (laughs) Contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com. Alicia, uh, we should probably do Magic Mirror on Patreon. Hey, thanks, new Patreon people. Y'all are the very, very best. Thanks for joining us over there. Stacy, you want to start out our Magic Mirror this Absolutely. Week? Our gratitude reel uh, goes to Eudora S., Melissa T., Kim A., Mariana, Kate M., Gabriella L., Lynn O., Lizzo. Not Lizzo. Liz. Not for real Lizzo, but Liz O. Thank you, Take Liz a beat. O. Take a beat. You're still good as hell. <laughs> Stephanie R. and Moira I. Also Tova M., Kimberly W., Mariah L., Ivan D., Kara. Kelly, Maya T., and Amelia Q. Thanks, everybody, for joining us over there. Thank you so much. What happened this week on Patreon, Stacey? Huh. Ladies of Elizabeth's Court Part 2. <laughs> Elizabeth's Court <laughs> Boogaloo. And why Robert Dudley, previously known as Pony Boy is now named Puppy Boy for the rest of time. Sure. Ooh, side piece this last week you did about Jan Winter. Kind of the long series of Jan Winter's life has been interesting. and That was fascinating. We did a follow-up on Trashy Tidbits this week with Randy and Miss Elizabeth and Lex Luger. Ooh, there was even a Trashy Impeachment this week that y'all can check out as well. Sure. One last thing before we get to it. Send us your own Trashy Divorces. We would love to make another listener letter bonus, maybe for Thanksgiving. Who's going to be the celebrity in our Trashy Divorces? You or your drunk uncle? Send us your Trashy Divorces to TrashyDivorces at gmail.com. And yeah, we're about to do Betty Broderick and Clara Harris. Are you ready? Ah, pop. (laughs) Six. Yeah. Let's go, go, go. I like it. Okay, Alicia. Oh, Stacy. Changing it up this week a little bit. This week. Bang, bang. 
It's so bad. I'm bringing you the trashy divorce tale of a little a little divorce ditty. Divorce and more. About Betty and Dan. Yikes. Betty and Dan Broderick. Mm. He only had himself to blame. Mm, no. If you'd have seen it. Nah, mm, I don't think no, you would have done no. the same. So Betty Broderick like literally snaps in real time. She's still in jail. She probably will be for life. Betty still feels really good about her decision to this day. He saw himself alive. She saw him dead. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, w- when people can't agree on basic things like that. I don't know. Like, this is a woman who had everything, who has to restructure her life and goes a little crazy. This case was brought up as kind of a champion of women's rights and Betty's rough justice. Or maybe was just Betty a lunatic already? Or was she driven to insanity by her ex-husband? I don't know. Let's talk about it. Betty. Okay. Born Elizabeth Ann, November 7th, 1947. She's another Scorpio gal. Never just an ordinary girl. (laughs) So she's kid three of six in a super Catholic family. She's got strict parents. And these Catholic kids are pre-Vatican. Oh, pre, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So welcome to OK Boomers. Okay. So she graduates 1965. I mean, that was back when like the nuns could literally beat you and and it was fine. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah. Well, mass was still said in Latin. Like, it's a... Now the only Latin we know is quid pro quo. <laughs> she gra- Betty graduates high school in, in 1965, goes to a small women's Catholic college. Betty majors in early childhood education. She is smart and pretty. She's doing some modeling, too. She gets a minor in English. She's no dummy. In 1965... She meets old Dan, Daniel, Danny boy, Broderick. Mm -hmm. November 22nd, baby, 1944. He's a Sagittarius. Okay. So let's talk about Sagittarius and Scorpio for just a quick second. There's a strange understanding between these two signs as if they were one and the same, at least for a little while. The strength of character they share is something that will give them just the right amount of confidence when it comes to sex and the creativity and openness of a Sag will be refreshing for the fixed nature of Scorpio. However, this often doesn't last long. And in time, in most cases, Scorpio starts thinking their Sagittarius partner is unreliable and not to be trusted, and Sag will see their Scorpio as dark, pushy, and a little controlling. Hmm. So Dan's a little older by like three years. He's at the University of Notre Dame. He was born in Pittsburgh, is the oldest son of a large Catholic family, much like hers. They have a lot in common. It's a storybook romance. When they first meet, he signs, like he, you know, gives her a number, whatever. Daniel T. Broderick, MDA, medical doctor, almost. (laughs) (laughs) He's accepted into Cornell for med school. And Dan knows upon meeting her, like, this is the one I want. They both want a large family and this lifestyle of success. They're aiming to build it and they're going to build it together. Young love. Betty and Dan get married April 12th, 1969. The Immaculate Conception Church in Tuckahoe, New York. In their vows, they vow to stay together 50 years. Is that like they they planned to divorce at that point? I <laughs> Was that the prenup? It's kind of a stupid vow, but... Whatever. That's that's my time limit. I'm giving you 50. Okay. Betty gets pregnant on her honeymoon. 
She has a daughter, Kim, in 1970. There's another child, Lee, in 71. Two more kids in 79. She does have a child who dies two days after birth. Yikes. She has a number of miscarriages. Okay. So the 70s for her are... Mixed. It's, oh, my God. Right. Right. Um, great stuff and also big trauma. Great stuff and also big trauma and probably some depression. And while she's having all those kids and miscarriages, she's working full-time gigs and part-time gigs and taking care of kids to send old Dan to medical school. Because hmm. he's going to school. Yeah. MDA. And she is pouring 100% of her soul and lifeblood into this dream thing right. manifesting. Right. Hardly... The first case. Dan finishes med school. Really? Yay, you're Dr. Woo! Yeah, no, we don't call him Dr. Dan Broderick. Uh-oh. Because then he decides he's going to go to law school. I mean... And so she spends the next set of years working to send him to Harvard. Whoa. Yikes. Okay. So he's a permanent student. I mean, get started, Dan. Highly Come on. skilled, highly skilled. Talk, talk about getting started. Okay, but I assume he finishes, and then he is a JD and an MD, which, I mean, if you want to turn yourself into a tractor that harvests cash, I mean, that's a really good way to do it. Totally powerful combination. Yeah. Like, Dan is going to practice law dealing with medical malpractice. Transformers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So after all of this med school, law school, raising kids, Like a a decade, yeah, a decade of putting him through various things. Dan gets a job for a San Diego wow. law firm. <laughs> Woo! You're, you, you're going to work? Five years later, he's doing well enough that he can go solo. And now he is eliciting huge fees. He calls himself Count de Money. I really, like, yeah, okay. I believe that. He's believe getting that. hand-tailored suits. He has a nose job. Well, it's California. Betty is like super mom. Super wife, super mom. She's got it handled. She stays home finally. Right. She can be a wife and a mother. And she now has. Yeah. I mean, he's taking 25% of millions. Gobs of cash. So they have gobs of cash. Okay. And this is, we're into the mid 80s now. Is that roughly? Early 80s. 80s? Okay. They have a perfect life. They have a home in La Jolla. She's got unlimited shopping and kid activities and money's rolling in. Right. High status. yeah, Yeah. 1982 and big settlements. They're taking trips. They have a ski home in Colorado. They have fancy houses in San Diego and fancy cars, fancy country clubs. Like, it's the life, and they have arrived. And it is the fulfillment right. of everything they've been working this for. This is, yeah, what they put that decade into. But this is not happy wife, happy life. It's not real. Because Betty's never content. She needs to be the star all the time. Mm. And no doubt capable and competent she makes the magic of his home life happen and she's super mom like she's totally involved in the kids lives and dan's life but betty because of that is pulling every bit of her identity right from this happy on the surface world that everything is perfect but it's not and the picture is what she falls in love with but it's about to go bad mm-hmm. it's dan mm-hmm Tell me about Dan. Count de money. Count de money. Is, you know, out drinking with his colleagues, which we call networking. Dan, Dan, the medical doctor lawyer man. (laughs) The more successful he is, the more strained the marriage. That makes sense to me, actually. They argue a lot. 
this is Sag and Scorpio going bad. She's mistrustful and he's like, you are crazy. Okay. They argue. They're throw things violent. They're actor outers. <laughs> she brings up divorce a lot. But it's an empty threat because they're both Catholic. They both know they're not getting divorced. Like, it's That's... her. Well, let's just get divorced, Dan. Yikes. Yeah, when I was a kid, uh, my parents, who never did divorce, uh, definitely taught me in a relationship, you you don't threaten. To, like, that's just not a threat you pull out. Yeah, but it's... But it's what she did. She's never satisfied. Mm-hmm. And... By the early 80s, right, on the surface, they're living the life of their dreams, but it's a nightmare. Early 1983, they go to a party. And Betty sees, for the first time, Dan's head turn nope. and say, wow, she's really pretty. Nope. Betty's never heard Dan. Right. Like, Dan doesn't look at other, like, right. she's like, I tr- this was so unusual to me. Nope. Dan's so, like, who's who's that girl? So the eye has begun to wander. Is that the eye is wandering? Okay, it's the new secretary for the office. No, and Betty oh is immediately God. on alert. I found our through line. This isn't what Dan does, but uh, Dan's a oh Dan um ends up taking the young twenty two year old secretary Linda Colkina in as his assistant by September of eighty three. Dan. Betty suspects an affair. Dan denies it, gaslights her for a really long time. And Betty, trying to understand, is like, hey, Dan's in a midlife crisis. Dan gets a red Corvette. Dan has a hot new secretary. Dan has a snazzy, risky business sunglasses and a leather jacket now. Dan is a walking stereotype. Betty's like, Dan, why don't you go see a therapist? There you go. That's like her telling him maybe Still, he need a therapist. I mean, okay. maybe he does. She thinks he's going to phase out of this. This is a midlife crisis. Sure. I've been there for him. I've loved him so long. This too shall pass. November 22nd, Dan's 39th birthday. Mm. It's 1983. Still. Betty shows up at his office with champagne. No. And red roses. I mean, yeah, fine. That's, yeah. Tell me what happened. <laughs> so... Betty comes in and the other secretary who's watching the office is like, uh, he, he's not here. Betty goes in to his office and there are birthday decorations already in the room and wine and cake. And Dan's gone for lunch with his assistant. And Betty sits in his office the rest of the for, afternoon. I was going to say for the next three hours. <laughs> into early evening for a husband that will not return Yikes. to the office that night. So Betty heads home. Dan comes home. Dan. You do not deserve what happens to you, but Dan. N- right. <laughs> <laughs> so here comes Betty to the lawn, confronts him. He gaslights her some more. She is a young and innocent girl. There's nothing going. I was at the office. No, you weren't, Dan. I was sitting I was at the in office. your office. Well, I was in court. No, you weren't, Dan. So Betty's like, all right, it's going to be like that. She walks over to the nice pile that she has made out of his custom tailored suits oh. and lights them on fire. Boom. Boom. Betty. the dynamite. Betty Broderick. Oh, my God. So she's expressing her anger. She is. She is. Uh, Yikes. Yeah. 
Um, this is when Betty says he starts calling her old, fat, boring, ugly, and stupid. Like, Dan is a lawyer trained to psychologically destroy people. She, right. she is under a lot of her own impressions. But now Dan gets mean. Right. Well, maybe because you're lighting my clothes on fire in the front yard. But No, there's, at, at a certain point, it's just fair to say, like, you know what? This no longer works, and we're going to be better off apart. How much money do you need every month to not feel terrible about it? Dan says that oh, okay. in February of 85. He moves okay. out. So this went on for a while. This was 83? was November 83. 83? Yeah. Okay, so it's they, they give it a try, maybe, for another year, 18 months? Yeah, he's still carrying on with Linda. Sure. And well, I didn't he, say it, it was a good try. Just... It's it's escalating more and more every day, but by February of 85... And I guess they're Catholic, and it's... That's a big deal. They're boomers, right. so they don't want to... Yeah, okay. Dan leaves Betty with the four kids, and uh, Betty, thinking that she is going to pull one over on Dan, is like, ha, 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 you try fatherhood, dude. So she'll drop a kid off on his doorstep. No one's home. Dan's at court. He may not be home that night. He's a lawyer. He travels. Like, but she manages to shuffle all the kids off to Dan, which uh, for Betty is like, hey, Dan, you're going to see how hard my life is. And Dan's like, you've lost your mind and you just gave up every bit of leverage that you may have had over me. I'm not giving you these kids back because you're out of your fucking mind. Yeah, and typically, I mean, this was probably true in the 80s as well, but if you abandon your children, the courts aren't super happy to see that kind of shit happening. Exactly. So, it's bad. (laughs) It's bad. And after 16 years of marriage in September of that same year, 85, Dan files for divorce. A month later, he tells... Betty, you know what? You were right. I'm having an affair with Linda. We're in love. The family home is sold. Betty loses it. She wants unrealistically a million dollars for the home. They get an offer for three twenty five, which is more than fair. Dan's like, I have in the moving out process. She has moved. Dan has bought her a six hundred and fifty thousand dollar house on the beach oh. in La Jolla. See. I'm okay. not saying it's fair. I'm just saying that is she has the three cars. normal mechanism of compensation when your cheating rich husband decides it's time to move on with the much younger model. Like that's that's exactly. So now Dan's carrying three mortgages. He has her new beach house, his new home with all the kids, and they have the other home they had when they're together. Let's sell the shit. Be done with it. He needs that home sold. He sells it. Betty is mad because she wanted a mill. Like she's rationally mad. Right. So she heads out to his home in Marston Hills. He won't talk to her. So she's like, no problem. She gets in her car and rams it through the front of the home. Whoa. Ah, um, wow, there are some through lines in today's episode. Betty spends the next three days in a men- mental institution. Seems fair. Betty is feeling discarded. Like a 72-hour like a hold. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Betty's feeling discarded mm-hmm. and replaced. Yeah. She is... Horribly horrible to Linda. She leaves horrible voicemail messages mm. on their answering machine. And she will continue to leave shitty messages all the time on their machine with, hey, 
bleh, beep, 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 if you should see any special trying to talk oh, right, about them. Right. It's just asterisk city. Right. Back when back when the, the seven words or whatever couldn't be said. And right. So these were just comprised of the seven words. <laughs> Pretty much. <Okay. laughs> what do we use for this one besides asterisks? Okay. But Dan's a lawyer. So he's saving every one of these tapes and transcribing them. Sure. These calls are going to be used in her murder trial, perfectly transcribed from fucking Dan, who does this for fun at night because he has a crazy wife. Okay. Well, and the divorce, I assume, is ongoing? We're getting there. Okay. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is the kind of thing you use in a divorce It's as a well. battle before and it's a battle after. So Betty's like, no one wants to take on Dan. He's been president of the San Diego Bar. And lawyers really simply are just trying to advise her. But of course, she knows better than all of them. So she's a difficult client having a difficult time finding a lawyer because she's running her car into the front door of his home. Not a great strategy. Okay. How to win friends and influence people. She knows better than everybody. Or does she? Because she has multiple restraining orders out. She can't go near the home, near Dan, near Linda. Her messages and car into the house and the clothes on. Like, all of this bad behavior is just getting her into more peril. And the court is trying to enforce all of these parameters. But she's like, hey, why can't you understand that I'm the wronged one here? She has never abided by a rule. In July of 86, the divorce is finally granted. Dan is given sole custody of the kids. Betty goes even more off the rails. And he's like, hey, until the settlement that we have is worked out, because that comes next, I am going to deduct financial support from you the longer this crazy shit goes on. So for every offensive word you say on my answering machine, I'm deducting a hundred bucks from what I'm sending you. For every time you trespass or make an unannounced visit, I'm deducting a thousand bucks, whatever. I feel like the advent of email may... No, I'm, I'm not I'm not kidding. I, I think that the advent of email, because a court can say you can't call. You, you can text if it's about the kids, but you're not allowed to talk to each other on the phone. Right. You may email if it is about the kids, but it creates this constant written record. Exactly. That, and honestly, if you're writing something, you have some time to look back. Like, you, you don't have to sit, hit send immediately. Anyway, I'm not saying it would have solved things in this case, but I do feel like today it's easier to kind of prevent the phone harassment. Well, we're going to talk about it. Um, Like, the more outrageous she acts, the more he pulls back, which makes her go to the next extreme. Their divorce settlement nonsense lasts for two years. But it gets to a point where his lawyers are talking to her lawyers. She never gets to talk to him. And she just wants Dan to listen. Just listen to me. And Dan probably by this point realizes he has married someone with a full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. Him letting the lawyers handle it all is a smart move. He is gray rocking her. Tell me, tell me about gray rocking. What is gray rocking? You mentioned this term, yeah. It's a good time to talk about this if you are or are currently or ever have been involved with perhaps a psychopath. So gray rocking is primarily a way of encouraging a psychopath, a stalker, or other emotionally unbalanced person to lose interest with you. 
it differs from no contact. You don't overtly try to avoid contact, but instead you allow contact, but give boring, monotonous responses so that they have to go somewhere else for their drama. When contact with you becomes unsatisfying over and over and over, the psychopath's mind is retrained to expect boredom rather than drama. Psychopaths, because they're addicted to drama, don't like to be bored. So within time, they'll find a new person to provide drama and be drawn to you less and less often. Gray Rock is a way of training the psychopath to view you as an unsatisfying pursuit. You bore him. He can't stand boredom. The a really good example of this is almost like three card money because with kids, it's hard to do, right? Like you still have to maintain some sort of contact. But in one of our listener letters, our friend with the cat and she really wanted the cat, but she didn't make a big deal out of the cat. So he's like, oh yeah, take the cat too. And she's like, great. Like the bigger you make a deal out of something, the more a psychopathic personality is going to be like, ooh, that's the thing I need to focus in on. Right. And so, I think I think it was a dog. And yeah, she was just like, right. Okay, we'll be out of your hair in a few minutes. And like, yeah, we're done. Like, just very casual. If, if it's not, a, they're going to find the thing that's a big deal to you. If whatever your really big deal is, you don't focus on and make a big deal. It gives them a different. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> a little bit more about psychopathic behavior you have to think of them as an addict they're addicted to power and that power is acquired by gaining access to emotions they know this and they need to constantly test to see if that person is still under the control needs to know that we're still eager to do their bidding make them happy avoid wrath creating drama so that they can experience the power of manipulating our emotions. As with any addiction, it's exhilarating to the psychopath when he gets his supply of emotional responses. The more times he experiences a reward for his dramatic behavior, the more addicted he becomes. Conversely, when the reward stops coming, he becomes agitated. Most will slither away. So the gray rock technique does come with a caveat which is that psychopaths are dangerous fucking people. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a relationship with one that has already decided to kill you, it's going to be difficult to change their mind. Oh, God. They may already be poisoning you or sabotaging your vehicle. Take all necessary precautions. In this case, the gray rock method can buy you time until you make your escape. Gotcha. Friends of Dan's are like, Get the fuck out of town. And Dan's like, hey, if she's going to kill me, she's going to kill me. I, I'm i not going to change my life. It's like giving in to a terrorist. I'm not going to change my life. If she's coming for me, she's coming for me. But I'm still doing the best I can. Yikes. In January of uh, the following year, they finally settle. Betty gets $16,000 a month until she remarries. She also gets custody of her oldest child. Betty's mad. She wants a better settlement. Now, $192,000 a year gonna say, for life until remarriage. There have been, like, when I was first in the workforce, I think I made not that much more than per her. Year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I had a, a year or two where, like, that was my annual salary. Like, shut up, Betty Broderick. <laughs> $192,000 a year mm -hmm. in 1986 dollars is $450,000 yeah. a yeah. year. 
Okay. Yeah. I could get by on that. I think, yeah, I think the both of us could scrape by. Since we do on a fraction of that, like, okay, continue. People are so... Okay, remember that extra. They're so extra. The six hundred and fifty thousand dollar beach house in La Jolla. I could also scrape by in a six hundred and fifty thousand dollar La Jolla beach house. The three cars. Yeah. Um like I would sell two of them. So he's making a hundred and forty thousand dollars a month. Okay. Which is about one point seven million a year. So Betty naturally feels like she has been screwed. Jesus Christ. So a few weeks later, she heads on down to her local gun shop. And buys a Smith & Wesson 38. Uh, America. Did I mention she used to be a avid marksman in her youth? No, you, you didn't. I don't think you did. Mm. So 10 days after what... Go team, would USA. Sportsing. Um, 10 days after what would have been Betty and Dan's 20th wedding anniversary. Yikes. Dan marries Linda. Oh my God, Dan. <laughs> Read the room, bud. One of Betty's friends is babysitting Betty for the whole day to make sure that Betty can't yeah, go, go nuts, ruin the yeah. ceremony. Dan's brother helpfully brings uh, Dan a bulletproof vest for the wedding just in case. Dan, again, does not wear the vest. but I mean, this kind of dark humor is... That's brutal. The bulletproof vest has just been laying on the stage since Act 1. <laughs> Betty is uh, becoming reclusive. She's not calling her friends back. She's depressed. She complains bitterly. She gains 60 pounds. Everything is the biggest deal, and she's not letting go of any of it. And all of the friends that she had left are falling away. Like, come on, Betty. You have a beach house, $200,000 a year. You have a neato job in this beach art gallery like live and, your fucking life and this happened like particularly in california this happens all live your life the time like You're, yeah she has a million peers in 1987 who are her age who have been through a divorce in la jolla first wives club go make your fucking that's magic, true right lady. they make movies about this like <laughs> but her friends are like god snap out of it yeah. your life is not with dan anymore but every crazy letter from his attorney to her attorney starts a whole new cycle of her crazy. And she is 100% obsessed focused. So now we're going to get to the true crime because Betty's going to snap, y'all. Two days before her 42nd birthday. Two days. You can't just wait to turn 42 and have a fucking cake. She has been in jail since this day. 30 plus years. Jeez. Have your 42nd birthday. Ah, Eat the right. cake, then kill your ex and his new wife. Priorities. <laughs> November 5th, 1989, Betty, who is, has her son there because Dan has acquiesced into right, right. a little bit of visitation because, okay, hmm. Betty's too uptight to sleep. Gets a letter from Dan's attorney, which threatens contempt of court because Betty violates every fucking rule there is and she's mad that they're insinuating that she's crazy and five in the morning she drives to dan and linda's house just before dawn she uses her daughter's keys that she has stolen mm -hmm. from her daughter the keys that every child guard with their life because they all know how 
dangerous Betty is. Mom should never, ever have a key to dad's house. And the kid is frantic that she has lost. Like, but Betty has them. Betty helps her kid look for the keys when they're lost. Oh, my God. Full well knowing Betty has. Yeah. Betty creeps in, fires five times. Dan and Linda dead. As Dan, who has fallen out of bed, reaches up to grab the phone to call for help, Betty smashes his hand with the gun and yanks the phone out of the wall. Betty knows what she's done. She turns herself in that afternoon. There's no question that she has done this. But why? October 22nd, 1990, her trial begins. Can I ask roughly, like, how old were the kids at this point? Um... To 11 middle high school middle school that's just so she just made the decision that they should have no parents for the remainder of maybe their lives cool cool okay just asking that's bad yeah it's like it's really bad she is a she is a woman obsessed yeah with yeah october 22nd 1990 her first First trial begins. Sorry, drop that hot bomb. It's the hot ticket. Cameras are in the courtroom. This screening is uh, preempting soap operas. She's in detention before this trial. She's animated. She's frenetic. She talks about Dan in the present tense. And she spends all of her time shaping perception of the case. She makes collect calls to reporters. She hires a PR firm. She's manipulating the press and telling them this very broad-brushed story of all the abuse that she suffered. Dan raped me on our wedding night. Dan was an abuser. He was a physical abuser and an emotional abuser and a mental abuser. And this is where I'm in conflict because I'm 100% believe women, but there's very little evidence that Dan did any of these things. Dan may be a dirty cheater. Well, and... I'm going to guess that none of this was brought up when she was trying to get custody of the kids back from Dan in the... No. Yeah. No. That says a thing or two. I can't find anything that supports these allegations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the prosecution will describe Betty as a cold, calculated killer. They use Betty's own words because they take out all of those voicemail messages that she That Dan lovingly left, transcribed. Dan lovingly has transcribed, probably in medical prescription Mm. terms well so they're unreadable cool (laughs) their daughter is the star witness for the prosecution and tells about like mom stealing the keys and mom not showing any remorse betty had said i couldn't let him win one of us had to die Uh, that's not how that works betty that is not how that works kid says dad wasn't to blame like she's making him out to be a monster and an alcoholic and Dad was a pretty good dad, and we knew she was pretty unstable. When she dropped us on his doorstep, he was a little awkward at first, but he learned how to dad. There's this harrowing call that's played with Betty and her 11-year-old son, where he picks up as she's leaving a horrible message. Profane tirade. And he picks up, and you hear this 11-year-old try to counsel a grown woman in the thick of a mental illness breakdown where he's like mom dad's happy and this linda lady she's fine like why don't you just go be happy you're making us all upset if you didn't leave nasty words on the messages we could come visit you more it's like 
this sage mm-hmm. 11-year-old trying to make sense of what the hell mm-hmm. is the... Oh, it's heartbreaking. Okay. Betty's defense, of course, is that he was an abuser. He called me fat and old and ugly and stupid. He gaslighted me. He lied and said there wasn't anything going on. But of course there was. All of our battles in court, Dan has left me powerless. I couldn't stand it another minute. My mind was a blur. I only took the gun for attention. I I wanted him to listen to me. And if he didn't listen to me, I was going to kill myself right in front of him. She has a few stories of how this all goes down. In one of them, Linda moves. Dan goes to the phone. They moved and I moved, but the prosecution She had broken into their home at five in the morning while they were asleep in bed. There is no, there's no, oh my God, then they got threatening. Like, yeah, yeah, I hope they did because you just broke into their home at five in the morning. So the prosecution is clearly showing she is not the victim in this situation. Yeah. On November 15th, the jury of six men and six women uh, are in the fourth day of deliberation and they cannot come to an agreement. Ten want to convict. Two are like, ah, I think manslaughter's better, not first-degree murder. They're hopelessly deadlocked. There is a mistrial. Boom. A year after that round, they're going to go back to court. Now, right before this, Betty gets in the news. Um, The DA has subpoenaed the jail to have any tapes of Betty acting out in jail. Oh, interesting. They're going to go in with the much more mentally ill profile of her and talk about her narcissistic personality disorder. But in one of these videos, Betty, who's never been a problem to anyone, maybe is provoked to being filmed, kicking and screaming, going into isolation, Apparently, she poops and smears it on the wall when she's in isolation. So none of this is looking good for her. October, one year after the first round, Court TV, this is one of their first broadcasts shown fully on Court TV. Prosecution's prepared. This time, Betty's found guilty on two counts of second-degree murder. So the jury couldn't get to first degree. So second degree means that they don't think it was premeditated. I may disagree with that, but I mean it. They sa- get there. It sounds like she she purchased a firearm ahead of right. She's been making a lot of threats. She's been she purchased a firearm, but it well, does. You even have one of their kids talking about it, like because Betty threatened to kill Dan, like on the daily, right? So like Dan was coming to pick up the kid, and he's like, "If I run out to that car fast enough, mom can't see dad." Right. Like, yeah, these kids. I can't even believe, uh, but I mean, on the other hand, I can also see how as a juror, you might be like, well, no, juror. as a rare juror, <laughs> she, she just sat up all this night and stewed mm-hmm. and just got, and so that makes it more of a, a momentary break. I, I don't know. I don't know. Betty is sentenced to two consecutive, not concurrent, consecutive terms of 15 to life plus another two years for illegal use of a firearm cool betty has been in jail since the day she committed that double murder seems good 30 years and three weeks now uh she was brought back up for parole in 2011 
Betty doesn't show any remorse and sticks to her story. Yikes. So. So she's not going to get paroled. I'm going to give a little all hail to Oprah Winfrey moment here. She interviews Betty in 1992 and bless everything that is Oprah Winfrey. Oprah's really trying to understand in this interview. But later in this clip, I've, I, all of my sites and stuff on the website, y'all. Oprah says that Betty has given her clarity in a different way about women of all races and socioeconomic backgrounds that she, Betty made her understand women in a different way. And Oprah says, Betty is a classic defining example of the June Cleaver syndrome. She has this picture in her mind and anything that is disrupted in that picture just it's, it cannot it, be born. It breaks. Yeah, yeah it, it breaks it, her. It, it breaks her. So Oprah like interviews Betty Broderick in 92 and Oprah's like, but you took matters into your own hands. Um, to me, it seemed like, cause Betty is hailed as someone who like, Oh, rough justice. I took matters into my own hands. But Oprah's like, I think what you really did was lost yourself. And maybe the more important message here is that uh, women need to know you don't give up your entire identity to someone else. And Betty immediately on the rebound. I was taught that love is making the other person happier than you are. And I think then you this were taught is still wrong. right. And I was happy that way. Mostly, I'm sorry that Dan chose to conduct our marriage the way he did. It was brutality and we didn't deserve that. So in her mind, even after they divorced and he remarried, they were still married. He might have made the worst choices. I don't know. Betty does say in the same segment that she takes full responsibility. I've never lied about it. I've always told the total truth. That doesn't I, sound true either. No, it doesn't sound. It's not. It's not at all true. I never made a conscious decision to hurt anyone. I don't even remember what happened. But she's described the scene over and over. Like it. Also, it's important to note, you know, there are a lot of instances where, uh, like uh, famous cases where um, women who had been subject to violence. Francine Hughes, the burning bed. That guy deserved it. Right. Even when they are not in that particular moment under threat that they, like, this is how, you know, domestic violence victims end up in prison because mm -hmm. they picked a moment when they when the husband was asleep or yeah. had passed out drunk or whatever, was not physically yeah, exactly. threatening them to take care of the problem. Yeah. This is, she this drove is to his home years after mm -hmm. they, like she was not, this is not that situation. No. no. <laughs> oh my God. That poor guy, his poor second wife. I mean, she says it made perfect sense to her. I'm I sure I just it wanted him to listen to me, but then the prosecution comes back like, well, wait a minute, just a minute ago, you said you were going there to kill yourself in front of him. So did you want him to listen or did you want... It's lies. So here's a woman who had everything, but it wasn't her own. She didn't own herself. And this is, this is Oprah saying this. She gave herself away to the idea of that perfect life. And because of that, she was never actually going to lead a perfect life. Yeah. Yeah. As trashy divorces go, this might be the pinnacle uh trashy the divorce was really bad but the double murder probably worse um not probably definitely worse. definitely worse i mean also it sounds like she kind of walked away from that marriage like a bandit you know like, like yeah, you don't have 
the problems are not what you think they are. We watch Frankie and Grace. <laughs> the beach house is what you want to get. <laughs> Certainly in some instances of women committing horrific acts, I can totally get there and justifying exactly why they did what they did. This time... This is not one of those. Betty just maybe undiagnosed with some kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. So this week on Trashy Tidbits, I'm probably going to talk about narcissistic personality disorder a little bit. This was shown in her trial to be the case. Like Betty's never going to admit that she might have been a little hasty on this one. Her crime still makes perfect sense to her. Her son, in a more recent Oprah interview, what, what are they up to now? You know, that segment says he feels strongly that she should be released. Quote, She's a nice lady. Everyone here would like her if they spoke with her on any other topic than my dad. Keeping her in prison isn't really helping her. She's not a danger to society. The only two people she was a danger to are dead. Until she starts fixating on someone else. Like, that that could be true, but also it could just be a matter of time. And those are the... (laughs) And that is my rendition of the dirty divorce details of Betty and Dan Broderick. Dude. Winner, winner, chicken dinner of divorces. There is not anything uplifting in that story. It's a trash. Like, mm-hmm. we do not recommend murder. No, no. All right. Um, I don't know. Do you have a number of trash cans or is that just like. Oh, that five, a hundred. I don't. Yeah. Trash cans filled with. A $650,000 trash can. Yeah. And um, baffling. Yeah. Like that is, I am unable to form a new construct. No, that's ugly. That's a. And I'm going to break down around it. It's a rough story. Uh, Divorce is a good thing sometimes. Take the $200,000 in the beach house and fuck it. Run. 16 grand a month. My God. I. (laughs) Like. (laughs) I don't get it. Even now, I that that's a nineteen eighty six dollars. Sounds amazing. A hundred million trash cans. This is the pinnacle of the trashy divorce. Mm-hmm. Double murder. Do not recommend. All right, let's take a break. Yeah. Yikes. Back soon. You got a story only told once in a blue moon, Stacy. I I do I do indeed. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the first episode of my imaginary true crime podcast, (laughs) Squeamish. In today's episode, we'll cover the murder of David Harris by his wife, Clara Harris, a crime that made headlines around the world in 2002, as well as some truly bizarre aspects of three divorces that arguably created the conditions for the murder. I'm going to quit with that voice now. That was my my intro to my true crime podcast voice. (laughs) That was pretty good. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> so this this story draws heavily from work by Skip Hollinsworth at Texas Monthly, as well as other contemporaneous reporting. And as always, we'll have links at TrashyDivorces.com. Okay. The murder of David Harris by his wife, Clara Harris. He ran into my car. He ran into my car 10 times. He did not. Talk to me. Clara Suarez was born in Bogota, Colombia in 1957, and after her father died when she was six, she was raised by her widowed mother. She studied dentistry there before moving to the U.S. in the late 80s to finish her studies and become a dentist. Woo! It's a good job. It's a good job, yeah. And necessary. I mean, 
totally necessary and actually for women offers an immense amount of flexibility. Oh. You can set your own hours. It's true. You've, like you're not on call. Like you can be a doctor. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Dentist, but still have some freedom and flexibility and still make bank. Cool. Okay. People need teeth. Most most people have teeth. So, yeah. Okay, so she meets David Harris in 1991 when they're both working at the same dental practice in Houston, Texas. He was folksy and charming. Apparently, one of his favorite words was golly or something along those lines. Oh, he's John Denver. It's he's, far out, man. Yeah, it's far out, man. <laughs> they marry on Valentine's Day 1992. Oh, that's sweet. Mm-hmm. It was his second marriage, her first. And Clara apparently bonded immediately with, I think at the time she was probably like six or something, but like his young daughter from his first marriage. Clara just, they just connected. Well, that's and super so, nice. Yeah. Kids so it are really, magical. kids are magical, but mm-hmm. also like having a great stepmom, magical. It's a big too. deal. Yeah. yeah. So by all accounts, things were really, really good for the Harrises for a really long time. When Clara opened her own dental practice in 1993, she told a local reporter covering it, quote, I found the best. I found the one God had reserved for me. Aww. Yeah, so David's orthodontics practice was near the Johnson Space Center in Houston, which must have put it right in the heart of wealthy professionals obsessed with perfecting their children in every way. <laughs> you know it's true. We were children in the 90s. You know this is the case. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So Space Center Orthodontics, as he called it, no, really took off. No pun intended. I thought Count to Money was going to win, but Space Orthodontics... <laughs> took Uh, off all right so the happy couple was soon living in this like sprawling like half million dollar home like it was described as palatial in one article i read like it's just a gorgeous lifestyle that they're living right like i mean a kid from columbia makes good yeah Yeah, that's amazing 100 percent. and they're deeply in love they're talking on the phone several times a day in between patients there it's just it's just super lovey-dovey for years. You're my lobster. You're, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot, lot, lot of lobsters. Lobsters, it turns out, have claws. I just want to... <laughs> Clara would always be home in time to cook dinner. In 1998, they welcomed twin baby boys into the world. And, you know, to celebrate her success, Clara sort of drove through her life in a Mercedes that was the ultimate status symbol for her. Like, this proved how far she had come. She'd made it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've arrived. For years, she told friends and colleagues that she had a perfect life, and she seems to have meant every word of it. And then, in August of 2001, David hired a new receptionist over at Space Center Orthodontics. (laughs) Nope. Gail Bridges. Gail was certainly the same social strata, having been married to a successful insurance agent. She was a mother of three kids, yada, 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 drove a Lincoln Navigator, whatever. They had divorced in 2000, and after getting settled into her new smaller home in a not-gated community, I think they just call those houses, <laughs> she started looking we for We call work. that where people live? Yeah. <laughs> like, gated communities are weird to me, but you do you, everybody. Swim and tennis? I don't know. Like, whatever. Okay. So I she... can't wait to build our lazy river moat in the backyard. Yeah, no it's going to be amazing. Our little, this this isn't even a quarter acre lot. This is nope. so much smaller than that. Here in our postage stamp. Um, okay. 
So she starts at Space Center Orthodontics in August of 01, and by the next spring, she and her boss, David Harris, were hooking up at the nearby Nassau Bay Hilton. Nobody. Which just happened to be the same hotel that hosted his wedding reception with Clara. Oh, Jesus Back Christ. in 1992. Nope. Oh, no. Dude. Okay, so- Find a new place to fuck. Oh, no kidding. Go fight. Go to the lamplighter. Go anywhere else in the world besides the place you had your wedding reception. They know me there. They're okay. fans. Yeah, right. We go I way back. America. All right. So David's <laughs> orthodontics practice was bustling. It had more than 100 patients a day. So obviously there were plenty of other employees. There's big staff that, you know, manage this whole thing. And within a few months, it's still a small office. Like everyone on the team knew that the affair was happening. <laughs> you can't hide that. So in mid-July of 02. The staff sits David down for, like, basically an intervention and suggests that, as well as ending the affair, he fire Gail, right? Which makes perfect sense. Totally makes sense. I mean, it's it's a sexual harassment claim waiting to happen, but... So, David hedged on firing Gail, but obviously he understood now that a clock was running oh. until Clara found out. So, on July 17th, he sat Clara down. And confessed. Whole thing. Affair. Straight up. That's okay. It's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You bite that bullet. Okay. So they drive to the office and Clara rages at Gail, telling her she's fired and she has to leave now and she can never come back and get the fuck out and you're done and I hate you and you're the worst and that's my husband. It's just all of it. Whoa. Okay. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I'm just guessing it sort of went that went down that way. There were enough phone calls from Clara to Gail that Gail's best friend, more on her shortly, called the police to make a report about terroristic threats. Oh. Mm-hmm. Clara was mad. Wow. Clara also did that thing that women do where she, I don't know, went to a plastic surgeon and put down $5,000 for liposuction and breast implants so that she could get her man back, I guess. I'm being was... replaced. How do I make myself mm-hmm. more perfect for She you? went to a tanning salon. She hired uh... a personal trainer. She stopped eating. Apparently lost 10 pounds that first week. Yikes. And, you know, friends described her as just ravaged by this revelation. She have just... you ever tried a week without carbohydrates? <laughs> I have, actually. You act Ooh. crazy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Still, it seemed like David was truly contrite. And like the entire family, they they brought Lindsay and they brought his parents in. They were like the entire family. I think his brother was a shrink. Like they sat down with. They're trying to work it out. His entire family. And he confessed to everyone, including his daughter from a previous marriage. Right. Like. Wow. Yeah. So he asked, I think the group, if he could have dinner with Gail one more time to break things off kind of gently to her he said it wasn't her fault that this had happened although i mean come on and that in effect like he just he wanted to let her down easy and you know be careful about her feelings and i doubt that anyone thought this was a great idea but clara and the family agreed like okay okay let's talk about gail gail bridges had been married to steve bridges and the family had lived not far from the harrises In their neighborhood and church communities, they were close with other couples, including Julie and Chuck Knight. Gail and Julie were besties, and apparently the Bridges and Knight's marriages were following a similarly doomed trajectory. 
In January of 1999, Steve and Chuck reach out to a company called Blue Moon Investigations. And they ask Blue Moon to follow Gail and Julie on a shopping trip. Oh, God. Having become convinced that the reason their marriages were failing was that the women were lovers. <laughs> Obviously. That oh. would be why. It's the only explanation. Uh, so, yeah, they send an investigator and follow him around the mall. Like, try on shoes next to him while they're all in Nine West or whatever. And, like, they call the guys back and they're like, no. These women are <laughs> straight women. There is nothing lesbianic about them. I don't know what they said in 1999. Again, repetition of trashy divorces. Be careful who you couple friend with. Yeah. Dude. Wait, so the husbands get together to try to frame the wives as being lesbians? Well, I think initially they did have a good faith concern that their wives were such good friends while both of their marriages were falling apart that something must be going on. Maybe I need a friend to talk to while you're... Being an asshole in a divorce? Okay. Go Go ahead. So Steve and Chuck are not happy with Blue Moon's report. (laughs) Okay. And so they're kind of done with the PI part of the story. This does not end Blue Moon investigation's role in this story, though, which is bizarre. So uh, also Chuck and Steve continue slinging around the lesbian allegation without foundation. Okay. July 1999. So like Six, seven months later. Okay. Blue Moon Investigations. Oh, Jesus. Through the door walk Gail Bridges and Julie Knight. Not lesbians? Not lesbians. <laughs> so, And they have no idea that their husbands had hired, like, they don't know anything. They just pick a rando detective agency? Uh-huh. <gasps> Apparently, they have the best Yellow Pages ad in the phone book in 1999. Need a clue? Call Blue. Call whoever does their graphic design. Right. Need a clue? Call Blue. Is that really their thing? Yeah. <gasps> yeah. So it's amazing. Okay. (laughs) So yeah, like six, seven months later, Gail and Julie walk through the door. They have no idea that their husbands had hired the firm early in the year. They had both just filed for divorce from their husbands and they had this tale to tell. Both men were threatening to quote, expose them as lesbians in court. And since they both knew they weren't lesbians and were not involved with each other, they were flabbergasted (sighs) and could only think that the issue was that Steve and Chuck were up to no good And we're trying to confuse the courts into awarding the men more than they deserved because Texas is a community property state. Right. Okay. Oh, my God. So, you know, I don't think Blue Moon told them. You know, I'm sure there's some confidentiality. Yeah, we watched you buy shoes and get Diet Cokes together. Right, right. You remember that time at the mall? No. (laughs) So Gail does not end up hiring Blue Moon, but Julie does. And sure enough... Blue Moon finds out that good old Chuck was getting it on with the wife of another of the pair's couple's friends. No! Lori Wells. Okay, this is the worst. They had all become friends when Gail met Lori at Lama's class and invited her to join their church. Their, like, Methodist church that was apparently a hotbed of suburban shenanigans and infidelity. I can only imagine. Truth is stranger than fiction every day yeah yeah spider web so three exceedingly ugly divorces follow the bridges the knights and the wells oh all of my them God. all of their marriages go poof all at once and everybody helped along by the blue moon detective agency seriously um <laughs> steve and chuck followed through on their threats to to out again i'm air quoting they're not lesbian wives 
And this was a big reputational hit in this like wealthy conformist suburb of Houston in the year 2000, you know, like, so Gail had lost her marriage. She had lost her like social status perch in the gated community with all the rich people. Now she just lives in a house. Now she just lives in a house. She's confronted with whispers about her supposed lesbianism Mm -mm. at church Mm -mm. when she goes to pick the kids up from school, Mm -mm. like everywhere she goes, like her life is so different. And somehow she has ended up, even though she didn't do anything wrong, like branded with like a scarlet L, I guess, like. Anyway, it was undoubtedly a lonely time, and attention from David, a successful and charming man, must have been a real balm. Mm. Others had darker things to say about it, like that Gail saw David as her way back to the top of the social heap. Oh. But whatever machinations were or were not happening, by mid-July it was clear to almost everyone that the affair had to end. Clara, however, found that as David's last dinner with Gail approached, she could not deal. So where does she go? Oh, Blue let me Moon guess. Investigations. Oh. Oh. She wanted her husband and his mistress, who, like, on the forum she called Belinda Gale Thompson Bridges, followed. And because she had used her full legal name, nobody connected the dots. They're like, what the fuck is with these people? First the husbands, then the wives. Now their mistresses. Here's a, like... Anyway, Moon investigations may need a better uh, record keeper yeah. in their office. Right. So Blue Moon. Do just, they have, does the county have them on like fucking contract or something? Because I mean, they're the people to go to. This, I think they've been folded into the NSA. God, no doubt. <laughs> okay. So if Blue Moon dispatches a 25-year-old criminal justice major to follow David, <laughs> who tailed him not to the restaurant where they were supposed to meet, but to the hotel. Nobody. Oh, So he met Gail there and they dined in the restaurant. The investigator was not able to get a table close to them. But at some point, according to Gail's friends, David told her he just wasn't ready to end things with Gail and could arrange for them to continue with the affair. And Gail was like, you know what? I think I'm done. I'm not, I can't do, like, your wife knows. I can't do this anymore. Like, no. So she walks out. David follows, they talk at her car, and then after a while, they both turn around and go back into the hotel and jump in an elevator, and to a room they go. No. So Clara, who is not taking any of this well, had been unable to contain herself at home this night of nights, and so she asked Lindsay, who is now 16, the stepdaughter, David's daughter, <gasps> mm-hmm. To come with her to look for her dad. Oh, no. So they go to the restaurant where the dinner was supposed to occur. They were not there. They go to another restaurant that David said he sometimes took Gail to. They were not there. So Clara calls Blue Moon and says, hey, where the fuck is my husband? And so Blue Moon calls the investigator and Clara and Lindsay head to the Nassau Bay Hilton. Why on earth would you ever reveal that information? (sighs) Which, well, she's paying for it, I guess. Yeah, but... Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So the Nassau Bay Hilton, which had held such a prominent place at the promising start of the suddenly precarious Harris marriage. First, Clara spots Gail's Lincoln Navigator in the lot. This hotel really likes this guy. (laughs) She jumps out, smashes the taillights, and keys it, like you do. 
Then she and Lindsay walk into the Hilton and ask for David Harris's room. Nope. But he had paid cash and used a fake name. So oh my God. there was no David Harris registered. Okay, so Clara and Lindsay decide that what they're going to do is each of them will call David on their cell phones and tell them one of the twins is sick and you need to come home. Like, no. Please come home. Like, no, no, no. Little, I don't know, little Benny. I don't know what their names are. So a few minutes later, the elevator door opens and David and Gail step out. Oh, no. A brawl ensues. <gasps> Clara heads straight for Gail and starts like slapping her and like yanking at her clothes. Lindsay goes for her dad and is hitting him in the chest with her purse, screaming, I hate you, daddy. I hate you. Clara's screaming, you bitch, he's my husband. Ultimately tears Gail's shirt off. <gasps> the hotel staff, of course, are trying to separate everybody. But ultimately, like the way this ends is that David like puts his hand on Clara's head and shoves her to the floor and then rushes to get Gail. His mistress, he shoves his wife to the floor and rushes to get his mistress out of the hotel to her car. Oh my God. So that's not great at all. So the hotel employees walk Clara and Lindsay back to her Mercedes status symbol of the accomplishments of her life. Oh God, but Dan and Gail are making out in the parking lot. They're standing at the, yeah. So the hotel employees make clear to Clara and Lindsay that their Hilton honors rewards are no longer good. Canceled. You need to vote. You gotta go. We're really sorry. You gotta go. So while she is still in the lot, she sees David and Gail standing at the Lincoln Navigator and she guns her car toward the SUV. She says later that she just planned to like fuck up the car. She just wanted to hit the car. Smash her nice car was what was in her head. Her car glances off of the navigator and into David who flies 25 feet through the air (sighs) across the lot. If you like me are squeamish, you may want to fast forward once or twice here. Clara did not stop the rampage at this point. She aimed the car for David who was laying crumpled on the asphalt and ran him over. (gasps) Then she executed a hairpin turn and ran him over again. And then she did it again. On at least one pass, the tires had traversed his chest, crushing everything inside, and David was very, very dead. Aside from David, the real victim here is Lindsay, his 16-year-old daughter. Who's watching all of this? Who witnessed, <sighs> in the car, who witnesses said started screaming when Clara first hit her dad with the car. She opened the door either to, like, exit, probably to exit, or just, like, to try to stop with her feet, like... Once Clara finally did stop the car, Lindsay jumps out, runs around to the driver's side window, and punches Clara in the face before collapsing to the ground, sobbing. Oh my god. Clara was just stunned. Like, she obviously completely lost control. So she gets out of the car and is just sort of dazed and then then sort of, like, falls to the ground and is cradling David's lifeless body, like, saying, I love you, I'm so sorry, like terrible a little late for that yeah a little bit a little bit so she was charged with first degree murder sure which in texas carries a maximum sentence of 99 years Mm. she's probably lucky she was not charged with capital murder she was convicted but the jury found that she committed the act in a quote sudden passion 
which limits the sentence to 20 years. And she was sentenced to the maximum. Wow. So the ugly divorces that certainly contributed to this tragic story were reignited by Clara's rampage. Steve Bridges and Chuck Knight both popped right back up to sue their ex-wives for full custody, arguing that Clara Harris was a threat to their children. Oh, my God. I don't think those petitions went anywhere, but they were part of the circus that followed. Clara more or less went into hiding between making bail and her trial. After she was convicted, she apparently became a model prisoner, learning Braille so that she could translate textbooks for sight-impaired students. Oh, well, that's nice. She was laser-focused on getting paroled and being reunited with her sons, who monthly were brought from Houston to the Waco area to visit her. Yeah. Just, I mean, everything. So she first became eligible for parole in 2012, and in all, she was turned down five times. In November of 2017, her college-age sons asked the parole board to free their mother. They said that while she had taken their father from them, they had also lost their mother. You know, they presented themselves as two more victims of the whole sordid saga, and the parole board agreed. She was released in May of 2018 at the age of 60. Wow. It was apparently living a very quiet life, trying to make up for lost time with her sons. And that is how several trashy divorces turned into a true crime story. I hope that you've enjoyed this first episode of my imaginary true crime podcast, Squeamish. There are not enough trash cans in Texas to capture what happened here. Your first and last episode (laughs) of your podcast, Squeamish? (laughs) Yes. But it doesn't sound like they could hang her up on first degree. Like, she truly... Even though threats had happened before, like it was like she was right. I I think because this it's all it's not premeditation. Right. You didn't know you were gonna like this all played out in a one week period. Unlike you know, years played out over years. years. This was again. You have this like perfect life suddenly punctured by one spouse cheating, and so I you know I think many of the things that played into the Betty Broderick story play here as well but you've also like the addition of you know gail bridges whose perfect life had been punctured already just the whole like it there's so much in this story games people play yeah and yeah i mean clara absolutely lost her shit and killed a guy um clara seems like she regrets killing the guy yeah i um as opposed to Betty. Apparently who... Oprah went to see her in oh. prison too. Uh, I did not watch that, but I imagine that there is some. It sounds like rant. a great follow-up for Trashy Tidbits this week. It does. It does indeed. What else is going to happen on Patreon this week? You've got your Trashy Politics. Sure. Ooh, my side piece this week is a little Diana Ross. I'm excited about that. Yeah. Love child. Yeah. Don't forget tickets for the live show December 29th available mm-hmm. at vinkmans.com here in Atlanta. Come have yourself a very trashy new year with us. We can't wait. Oh, don't forget. Send us your personal trashy divorces. Let's make Thanksgiving super fun this year. <laughs> and as always from our trash can full of dumpster fires to yours to yours. Thanks for listening. You are the very best. Keep it trashy. But not as trashy as uh, murder. Do not recommend. Do not recommend. Do not recommend. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Y'all are the best. Big cheers. Bye. Bye.
And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.